Have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going through the Word of God. The Lord blessed us with Joshua being able to teach us chapter 12, chapter 13, and chapter 14. And that was a true blessing. Those messages are online, cclivingwater.net, if you ever want to catch something that you've missed. The Lord has placed it upon my heart to be able to go through the greatest stories ever told in the Scriptures on Wednesday night, and so we'll be picking that up this Wednesday, and we'll go through a survey of just some of the greatest stories in the Bible. Um, Goes away off the beaten path of what we usually do. Usually we just go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, precept upon precept, line upon line. That's what we do. That's what we've done, but the Lord has placed it upon my heart to just be able to go through different stories. We'll still do a verse by verse study in those greatest stories, But it's something that's a little different for us, and I'm looking forward to it. So we'll start that, Lord willing, this Wednesday. I haven't really studied for that yet. So we'll see what happens. We'll we'll just kind of play that by ear as we get into it. But we'll see how that flows. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15, again, is where we find ourselves. And I'm just blessed by this section of Scripture. The title of our message is, The Greatest News Ever... That's what I'm calling it. Father, we thank you so much for this news, this great news, this good news that you offer to us, Lord, that sinners can be reconciled with their creator, that through your death we can have life, that through the proof of that death received as the sacrifice for the sins of the world in the resurrection, we can live a life that is worthy of living. So, Father, I pray that you would speak to us through your word. I pray, Father, that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see what your spirit says to the church this morning. And I pray, Father, that we would be wide open to hear what you have for us. So bless this time as we offer it up to you, for it's in Jesus' name that we pray and all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. So we know that the book of 1 Corinthians is a corrective letter. Paul is writing to this church and he's using his apostolic authority, letting him know that he was an apostle called not by man, nor by the will of man, but by God. And he addressed some things that were brought to him through the house of, who was it, Cleophas, somebody in chapter 1 he mentions, somebody with a C, some dame, some lady, some girl, um, The message had come, and so he addressed those things that were out of order. And then he gets to chapter 7, chapter 7, and he begins to address, now the things that you wrote to me concerning the questions that you had, and that's where we find ourselves. This would be the last question. It's the question, question of the resurrection and the significance of the resurrection and how this group that was in this church in Corinth Corinth, coming out of the culture, and now God had called them out of the world, out of their culture, but yet they're still in the culture, right? They're still in the world, but they're not of the world. And so there were individuals that were coming, and they were, they were talking about not such thing as a resurrection. And it was affecting their faith. It was affecting the things that they were going through. And so would we not live differently if there were no resurrection? Absolutely. And so Paul comes to them and he's letting them know that there is a resurrection and that if there is no resurrection, then we are without faith. We're no different than any other belief system. This is the 
the capstone. This is the thing that separates Christianity from every other philosophical view, every other belief, every other religion in the world. The fact that Jesus called it, he said, destroy this temple, speaking of his body, and in three days I will raise it. And if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then we're no different than any other system. And so how important is the resurrection of Jesus Christ to what we believe? In Romans chapter 1, verse 14, the divinity of Jesus rests on the resurrection. Romans chapter 1, verse 14 says, And declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. How important is the resurrection? Without it, Jesus isn't divine. He called it. He said, destroy this temple, and I will raise it. Number two, the sovereignty of Jesus rests on the resurrection of Jesus. In Romans chapter 14, verse 9, the Bible says, For to this end Christ died and rose and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. Jesus Christ's sovereignty, the fact that he rules and he reigns, rests on the resurrection. Number three, our justification rests on the resurrection of Jesus. Romans chapter 4, verse 25 says, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. Do you understand the doctrine of justification? It teaches that if you are in Christ, God sees you just as if you've never sinned. The doctrine of justification is crucial to salvation. And number four, our regeneration rests on the resurrection of Jesus. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We have been born again because Jesus lives. We don't serve a dead God. We don't serve a God who simply died, but he rose from the dead and he lives to make intercession. And we have regeneration. We are born again because Jesus lives. I said, and finally, I'll give you another and finally. And finally, our ultimate resurrection rests on the resurrection of Jesus. Romans eight eleven, the Bible says, but if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the d- dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. And so because Jesus rose from the dead, you as a believer and I as a believer will rise from the dead, never to die again. Spurgeon says, the fact is that the silver thread of resurrection runs through all the blessings from regeneration onward to our eternal glory and binds them together. And so let's take a look at this. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, let's look at verses 1 and 2. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel, which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that, that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And so he starts with this idea of the gospel. The question of the resurrection, or did Jesus rise from the dead, has been presented to him, again, whether it's through the letter that was sent to him by the Corinthians or whether it was from the household of Chloe, that was her name, Chloe in chapter 1. However he got news, this church was struggling with the resurrection. And he starts with 
saying that I declare to you the gospel. The word in the Greek has a U in it. It's hard to pronounce. If I put the V, I could say evangelion, but there's a U, so it's eonhelion. I can't pronounce it. It's a Greek word. But nonetheless, it means good news, and it's any good news, but it's specifically here referring to the good news of salvation. It will ultimately refer to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But back in first century AD, the gospel was the proclaimer of good news. He was a soap salesman. He'd come into the town with soap and he would say, gospel, gospel, good news. I've got soap to clean your dirty bodies up. Not good news if you're stanky, right? And so that's what the word gospel means. And that was the origins of the gospel. But here we're going to see clearly that it's something by which we preach, are saved, we hold fast to and we believe. I'm going to close with that, so we'll come back to it. He gives it to us in verse 3, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again on the third day, according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also as one born out of due time. It's as if Paul is in a court of law and he's saying, I've got proof for the resurrection. I'm going to give you exhibit after exhibit why the resurrection exists. He starts it in verse 1, and it would be the Corinthian believers themselves Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, which you also received, and by which you stand. Corinthians, your proof of the resurrection. Look at your lives. Your life was moving in one direction, outside of Christ, headed towards destruction. And then Christ came into your life as I preached the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. By faith, you received it. You receive that sacrifice. I explained to you that he rose on the third day. And now look at your lives, Corinthians, exhibit number one. Number two, the scriptures in verse three and verse four, he says that he died according to the scriptures and that he rose again according to the scriptures. It was prophesied. So that would be exhibit number two, proof number two of the resurrection, of the, resurrection the scriptures. We read it this morning, Genesis chapter 22. Abraham sacrificing his son Isaac. And you see it in that, a type of the resurrection as God says, I will provide, God will provide, and it's in the, in the Hebrew, literally, God will provide himself a sacrifice. The gospel given to us right there. And we see in Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53 and just all kinds of scriptures. The Bible says in Psalm 40 and in the book of Hebrews that behold in the volume of the book it is written of me to do thy will, O God. Everything, all these types, all these pictures, all these um, sacrifices are a picture of Jesus Christ and the sacrifice that he would make for us. Exhibit number three, verse four. Peter, the name is Cephas, but Cephas is Peter. The leader of the church at the time is proof of the resurrection in his life. Why? Because he saw him. He's an eyewitness. Imagine a court of law and you begin to bring in eyewitness testimony. Did you see Jesus after his resurrection? 
well, this, this probably means that I'm going to die for saying this, but I can't help but say it. Absolutely. Absolutely. I saw Jesus. He called me. I was, I was in my boat and he called me and there I was fishing. I couldn't catch nothing. And he had these grilled fish and he questioned me. I don't know, I don't know if you know, but it was after, after I denied him three times and he would ask me three times, Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know I'm affectionate towards you. You know I like you. Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Do you agape me? Lord, you know I phileo you. You know that I have a deep bond for you. You know that I'm committed to you, Lord. But in a humility, three times Jesus would ask him, Peter, do you love me? Three times he would say, Lord, you know I like you. Tend to my lambs. Feed my sheep. I saw him. I had a conversation with him. His next witness, if you will, would be the 12 in verse 4. His next witness in verse 6 would be seen by over 500 brethren. And notice what it says right there in that verse. Verse 5, where is it? And that he was seen by Cephas, then by the 12, verse 6. And after that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present. They're here. They're walking among you. You have them as neighbors, as friends, as family members. They saw with their eyes the risen Lord. And then he says he was seen by James. What James would that be? His brother, his half-brother, James, who the Bible, the Gospels declared, didn't even believe in him as Messiah until when? After he saw him in the resurrection. He's like, Dang, maybe, no, for real though, man, maybe you are the Messiah. Oh, dude, blow. Right? My brother's the Messiah. That's crazy. And he would be raised up to be a leader in the church in Jerusalem. His brother who didn't believe in him, but and then did believe in him. And then verse 8, he tells them, and he was seen by me. Then last of all, he was seen by me also as one born out of due time. When did Paul see Jesus? Whoa, whoa, whoa. Road to Damascus, Acts chapter 9. He falls off his high horse as he's on his way to Jerusalem with paper in hand to kill Christians. He has authority from the Sanhedrin. He's blinded. He falls down to his knees. A light shines. Peter... No, Paul, Paul, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Then he would go to Arabia for two years to be tutelaged by Jesus himself. Paul saw the resurrected Jesus. He goes on to say, verse 9, For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church. As Paul shares his testimony over and over and over again, he mentions, I'm not even worthy. I used to kill Christians. I was a terrorist. I was a religious zealot. I thought I was so right moving in one direction until God knocked me off my high horse and showed me that I was moving in the wrong direction. And that same zeal, I want to just, with reckless abandon, directed towards God and the things of God. If, if, if by a small measure I can just show him how much I appreciate what he did to find me when I was so lost. 
least of the apostles. In the middle of his ministry in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8, he would say that he is least of all the saints. At the end of his ministry in Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, he would say that he is the chief of sinners. So he would go from right here, the least of the apostles to the least of all the saints to the chief of sinners. And you have to ask yourself, Paul, did you like get more sinful the longer you walked with Jesus? And I think the answer is no, no, as I got closer to Jesus, as I walked with him, I recognized my sinfulness. I went from least of the apostles to least of the saints to the chief of all sinners. And I think that's for us as we grow in the things of God. I've said it before, as we grow in maturity and in, in union and in closeness to God, we sin less, but we find ourselves repenting more because we recognize, Lord, my attitudes, not just the things I do, but the very heart. It's so wicked, Lord. My motives are so wrong at times. And we find ourselves confessing those sins and repenting. And I think Paul was there. Verse 10 says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. I find this struggle here between the sovereignty of God, that the grace of God is working in Paul's life, but yet he takes responsibility to say, (laughs) I worked harder than all so-called apostles. I labored more abundantly. The free will of man. And yet the sovereignty of God, yet not I, but the grace of God that, that was working in me. I see the same exact struggle there between the free will of man and the sovereignty of God in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Whose job, whose responsibility is it for you and for me individually to have this personal relationship with God and to work out, not work from, or, or work to, our salvation has been purchased. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. But the very next verse, you see the sovereignty of God. For it is God who is at work in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. What? What? Wait, wait. God's given me the ability and the desire to get this done, but I got to work out my own salvation with fear and trembling? And, and what I see is, in, in its simplest forms, it's a surrender. God is willing that you would be dynamic for his cause. That that you would just blow the world away with the fire and the passion that you have for him. And that the world would look on and just see that, that light that shines and glorifies your Father in heaven. God is willing that all of us would have that. But you and I have decisions to make, choices to make, in the daily, fundamental, rudimentary things of life. As life, seven days a week, right? 24-7, 365 days in a, a year. We're making choices all the time. Who's running the show? Who's calling the shots? Who's running your life? Are you surrendered? Are you yielded? Are you, are you just saying, Lord, take me such as I am and just guide me, Lord, lead me. As you go before me, Lord, I will be faithful to follow 
after your lead because you will empower me to do it. You're the one that gives me the desire and the ability to get it done. But we can resist God, can't we? We can hold God back. We can give God the Heisman, if you will. We say, wow, God, I mean, I got my own little agenda here, and I don't think you want me to part of this. So I'm just, <laughs> I got this little area right here. And God's like, okay, go ahead. Let's see how that works out for you. <laughs> and some things, for whatever reason, you know, we just got to go through. We got to hit our head against that wall. We got to recognize it. Oh, okay, maybe God has a better plan. And then we come back and we realize, hey, you know, by faith, God's been pretty much perfect. His track record is perfection. I think I'm going to go his way. I think I'm going to participate and cooperate with what he has in store for me, as opposed to me insisting on my will. God, it's got to be like this. Why don't we just let God lead us? And why don't we just surrender to that? It's way better than anything we can come up with. As we go on in verse 12, it says, Now, if Christ is preached that he has not been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. Pitiable, pitiable. We're pathetic if Christ is not risen from the dead. Think about these Christians in first century. A little different than us. If you identified with Jesus Christ as the Messiah, when Judaism has rejected him as the Messiah, you were signing a death warrant. Every one of the apostles but John, who was exiled to the island of Patmos, would, be, would suffer a martyr's death. Peter, crucified upside down because he, he, he didn't find it dignified to die in the way that his Lord was crucified. Every single one of them would experience a martyr's death. And so Paul is saying, Jesus didn't rise from the dead. What separates this belief system from any other belief system? Why are we going through such persecution? Why are we giving our lives to this cause? No, 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 no. We saw him. We saw him. And we can't help but live for him. And we may die. It it may go down like that. But we know something and we have it. And, And I will challenge you with What is your life built on? What do you stand on? And if it's anything other than the solid foundation of what God is offering, it's only a matter of time before you recognize that it's sinking sand, quicksand. It's only a matter of time before you begin to realize and recognize. And so this is what we need to stand on. As we go on in verse 20, it says, but now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep first fruits takes us back to the book of leviticus in the law and i find it interesting the feast of first fruits would come two days right after the passover what so you would celebrate passover on friday and two days later on sunday you'd have the feast of first fruits wait 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 jesus the passover lamb was crucified on friday 
and he offered the first fruits to God in his resurrection. The first to be resurrected, to never die again. And what's the contrast between an individual who has died and been brought back to life because Jesus wasn't the first one. You remember the widow's son in Nain, Elijah, right? Lays, puts his nose right on his, that her boy's nose and his hands right on his hands and he lays on top of him and life comes back into that dead body and he's raised from the dead. And Jairus' daughter, she had been dead and, and, and Jesus would pray and she would come back to life. He would kick out the mockers, remember? And, and Paul, there's Eutychus, right? That guy that was on the second, third floor, whatever. And Paul is preaching and he gets a little long-winded like preachers do, right? And, and, and he falls down to his death. And Paul's like, whoa, snaps, that's not bueno. And he goes and he lays hands on him and, and raises him up from the dead. And throughout the scriptures, Lazarus, dead four days. Lord, his, he stinketh by now, I think the King James tells us, right? Lord, I don't know if you want to go in there. Lazarus, come forth. And he comes forth bound with those. Contrast these resurrections with Jesus as the one who would give us the first fruits. Those were resuscitated. They were brought back to life to die again. Jesus would rise from the dead, never, ever to die again. The first fruits. We, as his children, will resurrect to new life. Big difference. For since, verse 21 says, by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. So Paul begins to now anticipate with that, I don't know if it's a lawyer brain that he has or what's going on, but oh, hold up. Maybe people are thinking, well, I'm sure, what can one man resurrection do for the world, you know? So he begins to talk about one man. And everybody here that he's talking to knows that Adam's sin has affected them because they have been born into sin. They possess a sin nature. They know that they're naughty by nature, that they are distant from God without God's intervening. And so he begins to mention Adam, verse 22, for as in Adam all die, even so in Christ, all shall be made alive, but each one in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits after those who are Christ at his coming, Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God, the Father, uh, to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death, for he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. And so this one man that we are affected by Adam, we can be affected by Jesus and his resurrection. Where one brought us death, one can bring us life. Where one brings, brings us hopelessness, the other one can bring us hope. And then he says the last enemy will be destroyed is death. Are you aware that death is unnatural. We weren't meant to die. When God created Adam and Eve and placed them in the garden, it was for eternity in his mind. And he told them that on the day that they sin, they will surely die. But he had given them the option. And so 
when we are confronted with death, when we have individuals, loved ones, friends, family members who die, it's, it's a sock to the gut. There's just something that, oh, this isn't, this doesn't feel good. This isn't right. Something is not right. That's what God says. But when it's all said and done, the last enemy, death, even death, will be destroyed because God will get exactly what he wants from the very beginning in the Garden of Eden. I want my creation to freely choose to want to be with me forever. When it's all said and done, God in heaven is going to have that part of creation that wanted to spend eternity with him forever. It's a six to seven thousand year plan, but you know, nonetheless, we'll take it. Verse 29, otherwise, what would you do who are baptized for the dead if the dead do not rise at all? Why then are they baptized for the dead? That's a tough little verse. You got a group of individuals that are being baptized for the dead. Paul makes a reference to it. <laughs> okay, good luck with that one. We know that the Mormons use this verse as a means to be able to get their loved ones and their ancestors that go way back in their line, right? The greatest records of ancestors is housed in Salt Lake City, Utah. The Mormons have come up with this intricate system of being able to go back in the historical accounts to be able to discover their ancestors because of this verse. But, but is that what that verse means? That we can be baptized for people that have already died and they can go to heaven? Hmm. What was being baptized for the dead? It is a mysterious passage and there have been more than 300 different attempts to interpret it. The plain meaning of the original language is that some people who are being baptized on behalf of those who have died. Paul's point is, if there is no resurrection, why are they doing this? What is the point if there is no life after death? So that's kind of the plane of what it's saying. Uh, commentator Clark said of this verse, This is certainly the most difficult verse in the New Testament. For notwithstanding, the greatest and wisest of men have labored to explain it. There are to this day nearly as many different interpretations of it as there are interpreters. And so we might not make sense of it. I like John Corson's simple understanding of the verse. He says, baptism is a symbol of death, burial and resurrection. If Jesus is not risen, Paul asks, why would you be baptized? Exactly what it means and the exact meaning. I just think there was a group of individuals that were baptizing for the dead. Notice what Paul says. Otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead if the dead do not rise at all? Why then are they baptized for the dead? He's not saying us, we. He's not saying we're practicing this. He's not saying brothers and sisters. You know how we're baptized for the dead. He's not saying that. He's saying there's a group of individuals outside of the church that are being baptized. Even, all right, even them. If if, if the dead don't rise, why are they doing that? He's just using them as an example in its simplicity. Verse 31, I affirm by the boasting in you, which I, I'm sorry, verse 30, and why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? I affirm by the boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus, our Lord, I die daily. If in the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me if the dead do not rise? Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Awake to righteousness and do not sin, for some do not have the knowledge of God. 
I speak this to your shame. We're going to close there, but as he concludes this section that we will conclude on, he's saying, why would I pay such a heavy price if I didn't believe in this? Why would I encourage you to pay such a heavy price if this is not a reality? And then he says, be careful, because evil company corrupts good habits. There are people that are creeping in and they're telling you something that's outside of the truth. Greek, Rome, 300 and 400 BC, you had some of the greatest philosophers that ever walked the planet. Socrates, Aristotle, and Plato. And out of that, this Greek culture, which first century AD, the church is right there in the midst of this, right? So you have all these philosophical thinkers In the book of Acts, chapter 17, Paul would go to the Areopagus in Athens, Greece. And there he would declare to them the gospel. I find it interesting that he says in chapter 17, verse 32, and when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. And so maybe these mockers had crept into Corinth here, giving them this, there's no really resurrection. You'll remember that two sects were born in that time period from the last prophet in the Old Testament, Malachi, 400 AD, BC, I'm sorry, before Christ, to where Jesus would come on the scene, 400 years of darkness, silence. Sadducees and the Pharisees would raise up as religious organizations within Judaism. The Sadducees, a group, that only believed in the first five books of the, of the Bible, the law, the Torah, and they didn't believe in resurrection or angels, miraculous things like that. Again, the influence of a culture. We live in Southern California. If you were to take America through our last polling data, you would recognize that on both sides of our coasts, you have extremely liberal Views on both sides and in the middle, middle America, a little more in touch with reality as it relates to that which is conservative. And so here we are in the midst of what they were in the midst of. Individuals pouting and gloating that there is no God. You cannot go to a public college or university without hearing Marxism preached. It is the predominant thought in our university systems since the 30s, but 1930s, but profound now. And so as a Christian, it's, it's very difficult to sit under this barrage of lies and not have it affect you. Jump back with me to the first two verses, and we'll close here. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel, which I shared with you means good news, the gospel, good news, which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. What do you stand on? What is the foundation of your life? Is it the message 
that Jesus Christ has come into the world, that he died on the cross for your sins, that he was placed in a borrowed grave, tomb, and on the third day, he rose from the dead. And if that is not the foundation of your life, it will be a matter of time before you begin to see that your life is built on something that will sink. It's just a matter of time. We must stand on the gospel. And notice how he closes that verse. He says, unless you believed in vain. Notice verse 10. He uses that word vain again. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. God's grace was not in vain in Paul's life. Why? Because he worked hard. I labored more than all of them. For what? The foundation of my life. The thing that I'm standing on. The gospel message. For God's name. For God's glory. For God's kingdom. Not my name. Not my glory. Not my kingdom. Not my benefits. Not my rewards. I labored for God's glory. Notice the third time in that same chapter, or I'll read it to you. It's the last verse in chapter 15. Again, that word vain is used. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. God will be a debtor to no person. You cannot outgive God. If God is going before you, where would you be in a line if God is going before you? You would be behind him. Would he not be in front of you? If God is going before you, follow after his lead. He's leading you. He's guiding you. He has a way better plan for you than you have for yourself or anything that you can write on a piece of paper. In your wildest imagination, in your greatest ability to be able to dream, goal set, and just think of it. If God is going before you, follow after his lead. Walk through the doors that he opens for you. Respect the closed doors is from God. Let him go before you. Stand on this message that was preached to you, unless again you believed in vain. I think about the title of the message, The Greatest News Ever. You have anything that's better? If you don't have anything that's better, are you living for this? Is this why you wake up? Are these the last thoughts on your head when you hit the pillow? Are these the first thoughts when you wake up? Thoughts of what God has in store for you today? What is God's desire for your life today? This is the message that we need to stand on. This is the message that ultimately when it's all said and done and we stand before God, this is the message that we're not going to shrink back at and wonder, huh, what if? What if I would have took it a little more serious? What if I would have invested a little more You've been given three things, time, treasure, and talent. It would do you well to invest those in eternity, to have an eternal perspective as opposed to a temporal perspective. Vertical instead of horizontal. 
Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you so much. Lord, we don't work for salvation. Lord, we work from salvation. Salvation has been purchased. And there's nothing that we need to do to be able to be with you in heaven forever and ever. You secured that for us. And for that, Lord, we thank you. But Lord, the proof of that gratitude, the demonstration of our thankfulness for the greatest news ever is a surrendered life, is a life that would be yielded and surrendered to your glory, to your name, for your kingdom. And so, Lord, I pray that you would continue to just show us what's in store, next chapter, the next page in this thing called life that you have for us and that we would be desiring, that we would yield and surrender to your will and to what you have in store as we desire, Lord, to be your mouthpiece, your loving arms, your listening ear, your giving body. And so thank you, Lord. Thank you for the work of the cross. Thank you for the gospel, the good news that sinners can be reconciled with their creator and that we can spend forever and ever with you in eternity, in eternity rejoicing, being blown away. The best is yet to come. So Father, I pray that our lives would be a demonstration of that gratitude. Nothing more, nothing less. In Jesus' name. Amen.